campaigns in the past. The first time I met him was at the Vicksburg campaign in 1961. At that time, like every time I've heard him since, I've just been absolutely amazed at the knowledge that he possesses on practically anything that you want to know about the Civil War. He, uh, he's just an amazing fellow. My wife, who would have nothing to do with the Civil War, has told me that the one reason she'd even consider going on battlefield tours is to listen to Ed because she's just amazed that anybody can know that much about anything. And uh, I think with most people that would be a, uh, a little exaggeration. With Ed, it's probably an understatement. Uh, we, uh, we all know the yeoman service that he did on the raising of the Cairo while he was at uh, Vicksburg, and we know the yeoman service he's done for the Park Service over the years. We're very disappointed because he can't be with us on this tour other than this evening, but I'm sure that the remarks that he's going to make this evening will make us very happy that he did take the time to come down here from his busy schedule. He is now the supervisor historian in Arlington, Virginia for the Park Service, and I'd like to present him now our dear old friend, Ed Bars. Ed. Thank you, Tony. to me before because I'm anything but an expert on the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> but it's a pleasure being with you uh, uh, to uh, discuss a little bit about the Battle of Gettysburg and I'm going to, uh, since I didn't have too much time to dig too deeply, we're going to just bring the Confederate Army from uh, the Rappahannock up to Gettysburg. Uh, as we know, Joe Hooker had come out of the wilderness, as Jeff Stewart would say, won't you come out of the wilderness, and had been defeated. His army had not at the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, they, as we all know, there was only one man beaten on the field. It was Joe Hooker, but that's the important one to, you have to always remember. In, in a lot of battles, uh, many times it's the leader, if you're going to put your will on the make your will prevail on the opponent's commander, you can win a battle whether his troops are defeated or not. So uh, the Confederates, though they've been victorious at Chancellorsville, had suffered a blow, a crucial blow, and the death of uh, Jackson. Uh, following the death of Jackson, Lee reorganized his army. And this is to have important repercussions in what you'll be hearing the next two and a half days. Uh, at the Battle of Ch up to Chancellorsville, his army was organized into two corps. The first corps commanded by Longstreet, of course. Longstreet, as you know, was not at Chancellorsville. He was down at Suffolk. And the uh, second corps commanded by Jackson. The, uh, uh, the, second, the first corps had four divisions. The second corps had five divisions. Then they had Stuart's cavalry. So after the uh, battle a, uh, with Jackson dead, he decides to reorganize his army into three corps of three divisions each, plus Stuart's cavalry. 
Uh, of course, Longstreet, being the old First Corps commander, will retain the, the old, uh, will return the First Corps, but he'll lose one division. He'll lose Dick Anderson's division. And at the time, of course, as you know, at Chancellorsville, only one of Longstreet's divisions was, uh, only two of Longstreet's divisions were there. Of course, one of them he's losing. So uh, as they prepare to move into the new campaign, they've got to recall Longstreet's two divisions from down in the south side, Virginia. Uh, it'd be Hood's division, which arrives in mid-May uh, on the south of the line of the Rappahannock, and Pickett moves up, and Pickett goes in camp right north of Richmond at Hanover. Is have the dual mission, because you've got to remember the Lee's problem, he's got to always worry about what subsequently becomes the Army of the James. There was a Union force, of course, always holding Fort Monroe, so the Confederates would always have to worry about this force holding Fort Monroe. Uh, Fort Monroe. So besides the Richmond garrison, they would have to temporarily hold Pickett north of uh, Richmond to be ready to cope with the Union force operating out of Fort Monroe, which in, in the meantime, in the second week of May, had sent an expedition up to West Point. West Point is where the Pamunkey and the Mattaponi come together to form New York. So this would be another threat toward Richmond. So this would somewhat keep Lee pinned down while he's making his plan. So he's reorganized and he gives Longstreet the, he keeps, retains the first corps, but reduced it to uh, one division. So Longstreet in the, uh, by the mid-May has one division on the, one of his new division, one of his divisions on the line of the Rappahannock under McLaws. He has Hood moving up, going into camp at Petersville, and he has Pickett down at Hanover. Of course, with Jackson dead, they are, have to find something, a new commander for the Second Corps. The Second Corps loses two divisions. We'll retain three of the divisions, and he will give it to Yule. As you know, Yule had lost his leg at Groton, had a new leg put on, also an old bachelor, <laughs> taken the married widow, and was ready, returned to the army, and was assigned to command the Second Corps. The Second Corps, in the second and third and fourth week of May, is near Hamilton's crossroad, crossing, right south of, uh, in, the Fredericks, uh, in the Fredericksburg area, south of the Rappahannock. It will consist, uh, the Second Corps will consist of, uh, you'll uh, have uh, Ed Johnson's division, Allegheny Johnson, who you, we mentioned briefly when we were in the Valley several years ago over at, uh, in the Valley campaign, so he'll have one division, Rhodes, We'll have a division and early. The division commanded by uh, Johnson was led at Chancellorsville by Colston. Colston had been measured and found wanting at Chancellorsville, so Johnson is given command of his division. So they create the, uh, a third corps is now created, and this will be commanded by A.P. Hill. A.P. Hill had been a brilliant uh, division commander, as you know, commander of the light division, but I uh, imagine I'm not a doctor, but apparently is uh, a man that suffers some type of psychosis when he became a, moved up to greater things, as uh, my friend Tom Harrison knows, and as we know here at Gettysburg, every time he goes out to fight a battle, 
He'll march out, and then he immediately usually reports himself sick. He does it here, as you know, down at Petersburg. He did it in almost every operation down there. So, uh, but at this time, due to his brilliant record, this trouble of this man was not suspected. So he commands the uh, Third Corps, which consists of Dick Anderson's division out of the old First Corps, Pender's division, and Harry Heath's division. Stuart, of course, the gallant flamboyant Stuart, uh, our friend Marshall Krolitz's favorite Confederate officer, <laughs> has a cavalry. So Lee has reorganized his army. Now he's got to decide what he's going to do. Now, fortunately, we were Civil War roundtables, and yours is a well-traveled one. So you know that the Civil War extent was not just in the east. It extended out into Tennessee, out into the Mississippi Valley, and on into the Trans-Mississippi. So what you've got to remember to understand what happens here at Gettysburg is influenced by what is happening out in the west. Surely he had won a great victory at Chancellorsville, but at the same time, at the Battle of Chancellorsville, as you know, the Battle of Port Gibson had taken place, Grant had crossed the river and secured his bridgehead east of the Mississippi. There was great consternation in Richmond, how to cope with Grant's crossing of the Mississippi. Also, we have over in Middle Tennessee, Rosecrans has won, has, well, we have to say he won the Battle of Stones River because the Confederates withdrew. But he's in position at Murfreesboro, where he's been since January. Bragg has fallen back and taken position at Shelbyville and Tullahoma, and they sit and glare at each other. Tro Bragg is beginning to lose troops to be sent to Mississippi to reinforce Pemberton. And Johnson also leaves Johnson being commander of the Confederate troops between the Appalachian Front and the Mississippi, leaves Tullahoma, Tennessee on the seventh day of May. So you can see this is all happening at the same time. And the, you can see the great threat that is building up against the Confederates. They've got to do, Lee is under pressure to do something to help in the West. Well, uh, his uh, senior subordinate, the commander of the First Corps, Longstreet's suggestion is, let me take two of my divisions, pickets and hoods, and we'll use our interior rail lines, just like they did at Chattanooga, uh, just like they did at Chickamauga later in the year, and we will go out to Middle Tennessee. I will join Bragg, and we'll fall upon Rosecrans. Of course, he knew that Bragg was in hot water. There'd already been one round robin against him, so I'm sure Longstreet was looking out. If he went out there, there's a good chance of him succeeding Bragg. Bragg. Secretary of War Seton said, no, we'll send Longstreet and his two divisions to join the army that General Joe Johnston is assembling at, Johnst at Jackson for the relief of Vicksburg. So we have this, uh, uh, the Secretary of War having this one opinion, the senior corps commander another way, both wanting to divert to the west. Lee did not appreciate either of these two suggestions. He knew he couldn't stand on the Rappahannock. He'd already fought two battles on the Rappahannock. He'd fought Fredericksburg, and he'd fought Chancellorsville. He'd won them both. But he won them, but the, Union, but the Yankees just retreated back across the Rappahannock, and he couldn't follow them across and attack them on the heights of Stafford, because it'd lead to a, to a 
probably to a as bad as disaster for his army as, he had, as the Union had suffered in their battle. So he knew it would, uh, a victory for the Confederates on the Rappahannock would be just the same as at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Also, the area, if he moved north close to Washington, if he turned the Union position behind the Rappahannock and the Rapidan, and move into the area between War the Rappahannock and Washington, he would have the problem of supporting his army in a region that had had war raging over it since first Manassas. Uh, also a victory in, the, in this area for Lee would have no more consequences than the his victory at Second Manassas, where McClellan, where the defeated troops of John Pope had fallen back into the Washington defenses, where it would be impossible for the Confederates to assault them. So Lee began to toy with the idea of taking his army, moving around Hooker's right flank, and carrying the war into Pennsylvania. This would have, besides uh, taking his army into an area that had not been ravaged by war and foragers would put him in uh, would put him into a fertile area the C fertile cumberland valley of pennsylvania where he'd be able to support his army off the northern farms also an invasion of the north might encourage the uh the Sunshine, the sunshine, the peoples whose morale was beginning to fade in the north. There were the certain elements in the north, such as the Copperheads, were willing to let the Erring Sisters go in peace. Other, the, other uh, northern groups were advocating uh, a truce and negotiations to let the South fight a meeting of the mind in which the South could come back into the Union. Now, Lee was of the opinion, as was Jefferson Davis, if they ever had an armistice, uh, the, they figured that the, maybe the northern people weren't of quite as strong a fiber as the southerners. If they had an armistice and ceased fighting while they negotiated, uh, the north would, would rather see the south out of the Union than see the war uh, resume. So we have this uh, feeling of uh, Lee, why he wants to go north. He wants to... Uh, move around uh, Hooker's uh, right flank, take his army up into Pennsylvania where he can uh, subsist them off the countryside. Also an invasion of the North will, in his opinion, take the pressure off Pemberton and Johnston in Mississippi, off Bragg in Middle Tennessee, and encourage the elements in the North that desire peace. Well, uh, on the 14th, he has to get the president to give him the go-ahead. So on the 14th, Lee leaves his headquarters at Hamilton's Crossing and heads down to Richmond. He remains in Richmond from the 14th to the 18th, conferring with President Davis and the members of his cabinet. Uh, the President and all the members of the cabinet, except Postmaster General Reagan, support the move into the North. Reagan, however, holds out for the detachment of two corps, uh, two, excuse me, two divisions, to send to the Mississippi Theater of Operations. So when Lee returns to Hamilton's Crossing, he now has the President's go-ahead on, on a campaign. Well, he gets back and he calls in his generals to talk it over. And on the 18th, and Longstreet 
his president. And Longstreet, as I say, had first been championing the idea of letting him go west with two divisions to Middle Tennessee, join Braxton Bragg, and they'll take care of Rosecrans. Well, he's found out that the government has now sanctioned Lee's plan to go north. So he says, uh, I don't like the idea, but he says, uh, if we go north, I have a good plan that will succeed. He says, it sounds like a good idea, so what we'll do, we'll go north. What his plan would be a strategic offensive, carrying the war into the north, strategic strategy, widespread view, going into the north. But once they get into the north, they will go to defensive tactics. That once they carry the war into the north, they will then take position near Washington, near Baltimore, near Philadelphia, and force Hooker to attack them in a position of their own choosing. Uh, Lee uh, let him talk and uh, didn't particularly, uh, uh, showed considerably uh, weakness in dealing with subordinates here. Uh, if you're going to second guess what's going to happen, he actually, he should have, uh, uh, in my opinion, I think also Marshall, he should have explained the facts of life to Longstreet at this time and let a, instead of letting him go north, thinking that Longstreet went north, thinking that Lee was going to do what he had advocated uh, instead of getting the facts of life explained to him. So uh, as, they, as they go into the third and into the fourth week, Lee has to make preparations. They're completing the reorganization of the army. They're also trying to uh, feed up their horses because as one Yankee uh, uh, cavalryman said, they looked like an immigrant train that had been lost in the desert. The uh, Confederate horse flesh had been so broken down during the winter of 62-63. Stuart during this time had moved to the northwest with his four brigades of cavalry and had gone into position around Culpeper. There he was joined by McClaws. Hood had moved to Petersville. Pickett was still at Hanover. And meanwhile, he's, uh, Lee is having to negotiate with the president to get him to release Pickett from his position at Hanover, to give him Pickett's division to go north with, because uh, uh, the president is concerned about this Union force at West Point, He's concerned about the Union force at Suffolk. In the fourth week of May, the Union force at West Point moves north to join Hooker. So this begins to look like uh, the threat to the east is not as grim as it appears. The president now agrees to release three brigades of Pickett and Pettigrew. One brigade of Pickett, of course, will have to remain at Hanover. They also now agreed to release to Lee three brigades of cavalry from over in the valley. Grumble Jones's brigade, Imboden's brigade, and Jenkins' brigade. So that's going to increase Stewart's cavalry force from four brigades to seven brigades. It's going to give uh, Longstreet practically his whole corps. Lee now comes up with another suggestion which he strongly advocates on the, at the end of June. He says, let's bring Beauregard up from South Carolina, because we've got Beauregard, because you know the Yankee 
ironclads had attacked Charleston on the uh, seventh day of April, but had been repulsed by the Confederate fortifications with the loss of the Keokuk. But still there's a Union force operating off the coast of South Carolina. But they said, uh, let's bring at least Beauregard and maybe some of D.H. Hill's men from North Carolina, uh, maybe just a couple of brigades, and when I bring go north, we'll let them set up a headquarters at Culpeper. Just like in the Navy, that you have a threat in being. We'll leave Beauregard and just let it be known that Beauregard is at uh, Culpeper uh, when I go north, and that'll keep Lincoln's eye focused on Culpeper as well as this invasion column moving north. Well, uh, Davis uh, at this time made no comment on this. So uh, by the second, Lee is ready to to begin moving. He tells Ewell to start. So Ewell will move out of the area around Hamilton's Crossing, south of Chan uh, south of Fredericksburg, moving south of the Rappahannock and the Rapidan, and join Hood and McLaws and Stewart at Culpeper. Hill will be left in position at Hamilton's Crossing and Marie's Heights to keep Hooker occupied. Hill is told that if Hooker crosses the river and as soon as uh, Ewell starts moving out, Hooker did throw a brigade across the river at deep run. But, wants to have a heavy bombardment, but it looked a little too much like uh, act to really uh, Lee halted Ewell one day as he's moving to the northwest but looked too much like an act. Uh, they were putting on too much uh, demonstration to be an actual attack, so Lee decided to that it was a demonstration only, this crossing at, ha at uh, Deep Run. So Ewell moves on. Hill, his instructions are, if Hooker disappears from his front, he's to cross the Rappahannock and occupy Stafford Heights. If Hooker crosses, he is to fall back toward Richmond. Well, we get old, old Lee and them get up to Culpeper. And Lee sets up his headquarters. He has Stuart there, and he has uh, five divisions. Pickett is now moving up. Hill is still along the line of the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg. Well, they decide to have, uh, since there are a lot of ladies here, they always like these human interest and colorful stories. I know my friend Marshall doesn't go for all these things, but they decide to have this big review on the 8th. And uh, Stuart, the flamboyant Stuart, Marshall's favorite Civil War general, <laughs> schedules this great review of his, four, of his four brigades of cavalry. And he goes and he tells Hood, he invites Lee, and he tells Hood, why don't you bring a few of your people too? Hood took his invitation and brought his whole division to watch this review. And, and Lee shows up, and, and Stuart uh, shows up at the review with his horse garland and flowers. Confederate cavalry forms a double line, three miles long. And while Hood's infantry looks on, Lee at the gallop gallops down, one, one, the front rank turns and gallops back, the other rank. Uh, some of the Hood, some of Hood's men are supposed to said, "Give us a word, John Bell, and we'll clean the hell out, clean, <laughs> clean hell out of the cavalry," because the, uh, the infantry, you know, just didn't have any opinion of these cavalry as fighters. 
Well, uh, Stewart had made his big show on the 8th, but an important event for the campaign happens on the 9th. The army is still in camp there at, uh, at Culpeper Hill again, still back here on the Rappahannock watching Hooker. Well, on the 9th, the Union Cavalry, which suddenly has, under Hooker, we have to give Hooker his due. He'd reorganized the Union Cavalry, and under Hooker, the Union Cavalry became quite efficient and for the first time could uh, fight on equal terms with the rebels. And on the morning of the night, Union cavalry columns swept across the Rappahannock at Beverly's and Kelly's Ford, driving in the Confederate pickets and began driving toward uh, uh, Stewart's camp, which is near Fleetwoods Heights or Brandy Station. During the day, we run into uh, this uh, dispute whether this was the biggest cavalry battle or the one you saw this morning was the biggest cavalry this afternoon was the biggest cavalry battle in the in the Civil War. But we but this was a large cavalry battle, so I won't get into the arguments with my friend Mr. Harrison over there. Uh, takes place. I guess you can always get when I have my fight with Harry Fonts on it. Harry Fonts always says at uh, at Brandy Station the Confederates brought up a brigade of infantry. Well, they fight all, they charge and fight all day. And the Union cavalry for once hold, for a long time, more than held their own. Lee hears of the fighting and rides forward about 4.30, and as he rides forward, he meets an ambulance bringing his son, Rooney, who has been seriously wounded in the battle to the rear. About this time, the Union break off the engagement as the Confederate infantry start coming up, recross the Rappahannock at Kelly's and Beverly's Ford, and the battle is over. But the uh, Richmond press took note of this, and that the Yankee cavalry had done right well in this battle, and made several, some rather caustic remarks about Stuart. And Stuart being a flamboyant individual with a lot of ego, this probably began to bother him a little. So we have uh, this uh, Brandy, Battle of Brandy Station uh, is to have important repercussions later, as uh, a lot of some writers think that may, this may have been partly responsible or may have been all the way responsible for fam Stewart's famous ride that he was trying to redeem his reputation that he had lost at Brandy Station on the 9th. Well, on the 10th, the Yankees had fallen back, made no effort to come back across the Rappahannock on the 10th. So on the 10th, Ewell is up. And on the 10th, Lee issue is now ready to move his next step forward. Ewell is told to take his second corps and start for the Shenandoah Valley. Longstreet will take position east of the Blue Ridge to cover these gaps. As you remember, two years ago, we rode along the Blue Ridge. He's going to take a position east of the Blue Ridge to cover the gaps along with Stuart. And also by moving to the north along the Blue Ridge, they're now getting outflanking Hooker. This, at the same time, Hill starts up the south bank of the Rappahannock to join Lee at Culpeper. 
the movement takes moves on to the 15th of June. And on the 15th day of June, we have Longstreet into position covering the gaps along with Stewart. Hill has arrived at Culpeper. Ewell is in the valley. On the 15th over in the valley, as you know, Ewell moves, closes in on Milroy at Winchester. He attacks Winchester, routes Milroy's force, destroying a force of some 4,000 men. Lee receives this news on the 16th, and on the 16th he orders the army to continue. He orders Hill to now move into the valley. So what there's going to be a, actually four moves going on at this time, if we follow the, uh, the Lee's basic plan. We're going to have Ewell moving up the moving down the up the valley, which of course is north, toward Williamsport to cross into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Hill will pass through Chester's Gap and follow him up the valley. Longstreet will continue to screen until Hill has passed to the west of him. Then Stuart will have the responsibility for screening the gaps. The army, Lee at this time, moves his headquarters to Markham. Markham is on the Manassas, is on the Manassas Gap Railroad, just to the east of Front Royal. And here he remains until the 19th. The Union cavalry is uh, on, then on the 19th, you, uh, Lee moves his headquarters to Barraville because by this time, Ewell has crossed the Potomac into Maryland. As he crosses the Potomac, he leaves roads behind to guard the crossings and moves northward with Allegheny Johnson and Early's division. Longstreet then passes through the gaps and follows Hill northward. Jeb Stuart now left to guard the gaps. On the 22nd, Union cavalry became very aggressive and moving westward struck Stuart's men at, Middle, Middle, at, at Middletown and Ashley's Gap and drove them back into the gaps. Longstreet has passed into the, into the Shenandoah Valley and was forced to detach men to guard, the, to support Stuart. The Union again pulled back, and the U Confederate advance continues northward. Now, on the 22nd, Lee contacts Stuart with his first order. And he says, uh, we're moving north. He said, uh, you'll deploy your cavalry as follows. Two of your brigades, Rumble Jones, and one of the brigades out of your division will remain behind to guard the gaps and the rear of the army as it moves northward into Pennsylvania and Maryland. You with your three brigades, other brigades, will move to the east and find out what Hooker is doing. Reports had reached Lee that uh, the Union had assembled their pontoon train near Edwards Ferry, which is near, which is east of Leesburg, and he wanted Stuart to move east and feel for uh, feel for 
Hooker, find out what Hooker is doing. Is he moving north? Is he going to cross the Potomac? What he feels for Hooker and finds Hooker, and if Hooker is crossing the Potomac, he has two options. As soon as he finds that uh, Hooker is crossing the Potomac, he can do two things. He can either return to the west, pass through the gaps, and follow the army northward up the Cumberland Valley into Maryland and Pennsylvania, or he can pass to the east of Hooker, not stopping to raid or forage and take position after he gets into Pennsylvania on Ewell's, to the east of Ewell, keep you better than using rights and lefts. This goes out to Jeb on the 22nd. These instructions are reiterated on the 23rd, and Stuart disappears with his three brigades. Two other brigades, detached, remain behind. Jenkins has moved on up into Pennsylvania and has joined Ewell, the screen for Ewell. By this time, they're pressing northward and approaching, heading toward Carlisle and York. Because as you know, as Ewell moved north, he split his corps. Early moves to the east of the line of march, followed by Allegheny, Johnson, and Rhodes. Ewell passing through Gettysburg, at, passing toward Gettysburg to Hanover and on toward York as uh, Allegheny, Johnson, and Rhodes thrust toward Carlisle, covered by Jenkins. All right. Lee reaches the Potomac on the 25th at Williamsport. During the day, it had begun to rain on the 24th. The Potomac was normally low at this time, but it could be a threat if you got some prolonged rain. And as he's riding northward, he falls in with Epahutton. Who's commanding a, a Gar who at this time is commanding Garnett's brigade, Garnett being ill on the 25th day of June. And as they dry, ride northward, he tries to, uh, Epahutton has uh, uh, visions of trouble when they get, probably remembering their first invasion of the North, suggests that things might not be too pleasant on this invasion of the North, but Lee is very confident and uh, says that great things will soon develop. They reach the Potomac and board the Potomac in a rainstorm. As they come out, another human interest story for the ladies, uh, a couple of three women are waiting on the banks to uh, sympathizers. Uh, evidently, uh, one of the staff officers isn't too gallant because he said one of them had a face like a doorknob. <laughs> uh, they greeted him uh, and uh, Lee, uh, while, as we remember Lee's statement at Fredericksburg, at Marie's Heights, that it's well that war is so terrible or we might learn to love it, uh, was not quite of the same personality as Stuart, because these ladies had a big garland of flowers to drape around Traveler's Neck. But uh, Lee was about, not about to let them drape it around Traveler's Neck. He suggested that they might drape it around Pickett's uh, uh, horse's neck. But they, as I say, they weren't very beautiful, or I imagine uh, Georgie would have probably let it, uh, though Freeman says he had a, his heart, he left his heart in Virginia, but uh, uh, I know of uh, George Pickett left several hearts everywhere, because as we know, out in the, uh, out in the, war out in Washington Territory, he has a, uh, of course, there are no descendants because he died off, but at one time he had some, uh, 
half uh, white, half Indian descendants out in the out in, out in Washington Territory. So he had two. Uh, Pickett has two families. So uh, the army continues northward on the 26th. Lee passing through Fredericksburg, uh, passing through Hagerstown, and at Hagerstown uh, he is again uh, cheered by the southern sympathizers and the northern sympathizers look on glumly as the Confederate army passes through in a rainstorm and on the 27th finds Lee camp at Chambersburg where Longstreet and Hill's Corps go into position. He still has not heard anything concrete about what fighting Joe Hooker is doing. Uh, this time, of course, on the 27th, uh, the Union troops had entered Carlisle, uh, Early's, uh, uh, Ewell's people, and were within five miles of York, Early's people. And so he's at a, he is in, in camp here at, uh, at Chambersburg, near, uh, actually outside of Chambersburg at Shutter's Woods. And Lee, as I say, uh, uh, was trying to encourage the peace party in the north. He also had again messaged uh, Davis to, uh, to create this threat in being by ordering Beauregard up to Culpeper with a couple of brigades to play on the president's feeling uh, that this would constitute a threat to Washington, to maybe divide Hooker on where he's going to lunge. Uh, he also issued, uh, at this time, General Order 73, which uh, has been widely quoted to show that Lee uh, 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 was very humane. He uh, it was to, had two reasons. He, was, uh, uh, he frowned very much on foraging. Much more. Uh, he didn't have quite the same opinion of the bummers and the foragers that General uh, that Uncle Billy Sherman did. But then he issued an order strongly uh, holding forth against foraging. All property was to be purchased with Confederate money. Of course, uh, Confederate money uh, doesn't have too much value, or with receipts. If they refused to take Confederate money, they were to give receipts, which they could redeem from the United States government later. Uh, so this was to uh, put a, uh, to, keep, to control his army so as not to discourage the, to encourage the Northern Peace Party, because if you go out and you, you ran wild, it would, uh, it would harden the Northern will, he figured. So he, he issues General Order 73 at this time. On the night, uh, still up to the night of the 28th, Lee doesn't know what Hooker happens to Hooker. Of course, by this time we know, since we're following Lee's movements, Hooker is, is out. But on the night of the 28th, Lee is in camp at Shutter's Woods, and about 10.30 in the evening, uh, Captain Fairfax comes up, knocks on his tent pole, and says, we got uh, uh, one Longstreet scouts here. Her is Her Harrison is here. And uh, Lee didn't have much uh, faith in these scouts, and, but, he, uh, but Fairfax said uh, Longstreet has high faith in him. And, uh, and he said... Uh, he says that the Yankees are north of the Potomac River, and it's uh, first Lee concrete evidence that he has. Uh, Lee is still skeptical, dismisses Fairfax, but later in the evening he sends for Harrison. Harrison comes in and he tells Lee that uh, well, he left Longstreet's corps back at Culpeper and drifted through the lines and went into Washington and hung around Washington a few days and uh, on about the 25th late on the 25th, early on the 26th, he started 
out of Washington on the Rockville Pike, up around Frederick, saw two Union Corps in the Frederick area. Two other Union Corps are to the west of Frederick, toward South Mountain, toward Turner's Gap, where they're, gonna, where they're in a good position to get astride Lee's supply line back to Virginia. So they're at least, he's identified at least four corps in the Frederick area, about 15 miles north of the Potomac. Heads on to Chambersburg, where he hears Lee is, and it gives us news to Lee, and Lee is thunderstruck by this. This indicates that, uh, this indicates that uh, something has happened. No, no word from Stuart. He also hears from Harrison that uh, the Yankees have a new commander. Hooker's been fired, and Meade is in command. Now, Meade is an old member of the old Corps of Engineers. It's really interesting when you read the Corps of Engineers record, uh, you go through them and you got uh, back in the 18, it's like a club back in the 1830s and 1840s and 50s because a good part of the leaders of both armies of these engineers. You got Rosecrans, you got uh, Lee, you got McClellan, and you go, go, go on down the line. So Lee is very familiar with Meade. And he uh, allowed that, uh, he better not make any mistakes with Meade, but he also allowed that uh, since the Union Army is in motion when Meade takes command, that that's maybe going to put one strike against Meade, that uh, it's very, he's got to take command of this army when it's in motion and in proximity to the foe. But he knows he's going to have to concentrate his army because the Yankees are north of the river. So on the 20, early on the 29th, orders go out recalling Ewell from Carlisle, recalling Early from York, and ordering, uh, ordering Hill and Longstreet to put their armies in, put their corps in motion to the west. The day before, as you know, is this interesting story that comes up that he'd been talking to old Ike Trimble. Ike was along, he's a major general, you know, he'd been badly wounded also in Groton. And he was along as more or less an observer. In uh, fact, at uh, first day at Gettysburg, he was a volunteer aide, as we know, to Yule. And, but he'd, been a, he'd helped build the railroads in this area, and he was very familiar with them. And he'd briefed, uh, he'd briefed Lee on the geography of this area. And he told him that Adams County, supposedly, as Trimble was to remember it several years after the war, that Adams County was a good place for fighting battles because you came out of the, came out of the mountains and you got into these rolling hills. That Lee is supposed to looked at the maps and saw these different road networks, as you know, centering on Gettysburg, and he said, here's where the battle is going to be fought. And whether Trimble was remembering things several years after the war or not, but this is the conversation that Trimble recalls. So on the, on the 29th, the Confederate Army starts to concentrate. And as they move out of Chambersburg, they run into trouble because they're moving, uh, they're moving six divisions plus the Army trains on one road. So they decide they better... They're going to have to move, uh, control this movement. So that'll be Hill will move first, then Longstreet, and Pickett will have to remain in the Chambersburg area until Imboden arrives from further west to guard the Union, the trains that they're going to leave in the Chambersburg area. So on the 29th, the Confederates start their concentration toward Gettysburg. The 30th, the marches are continued. Uh, Lee spending the spending the night of the 30th. West of, uh, east of Cash Town, west of Cash Town. He moved, he's riding forward on the 30th. He spends the night on the 30th at Greenwood. And here he gets some rather disconcerting news at Greenwood that night. He uh, 
learns from Heth that uh, Pettigrew's men, as you know, were short of shoes, and they decided to send him into Gettysburg to pick up shoes. And, uh, Pettigrew's men start in. They uh, found Union cavalry in the town and came back. On the morning of the 1st, the advance is renewed. Uh, Lee passes through Cache Town, right through Dick Anderson's men, the rear division of hills as they're marching to the east. And as the day progresses, he begins to hear uh, the distant rumble of artillery. Passing to the east of Cache Town, he begins to catch the crash of small arms fire. He arrives finally at about two o'clock on the ridge to the west of Willoughby Run. As he looks down, he can see, he looks across on the, up on the ridge to the east of Willoughby Run, he can see Union guns in position, Union infantry down in the west side of Willoughby Run. He can see Hess men in position. Does some conversation, as you know, he learns that Heth during the morning has moved forward, uh, collided with units of the First Corps under Reynolds. You'll be learning from your guides, you're from men that know much more about it than I do tomorrow, that uh, two of the uh, brigades, Archers and Davises, have been badly cut up and driven back. And the uh, Lee sits there, uh, Pender comes up, begins taking position on Hess right in support. Anderson is still quite a ways back, Longstreet further back. And Lee is debating maybe, uh, let's uh, uh, call it quits right now for the afternoon. But about this time, the crash of firing starts off to the northeast. And as Lant Chance would have it, uh, Rhodes has just moved in and has struck toward the Union exposed right flank. You know, the battle begins to develop. Rhodes attacks. His attack does not uh, dole uh, his left flank brigade under doles, wings too far to the left. O'Neill blunders. You know, if you always blunder under Lee, you end up out in the west. Uh, O'Neill got shipped down to Andersonville as a guard shortly after that and joined one of our western armies. And uh, his, his brigade fouled apart. The other three brigades moved in. Uh, Union soon checked roads. Up comes early, and disaster overcomes the 11th Corps. Better troops move forward, and the battle is joined. We'll cover that the rest tomorrow, and this is briefly the story of Lee's march from the Rappahannock to Gettysburg. I, sorry I didn't have time to go into the Union operations, both because I didn't have too much time to read up on it, and I didn't want to take too much of your time tonight. Thank you very much. Ed, thank you very much. Uh, at this time, I'd like to call on our good friend Marshall to make a little presentation and appreciation, Marshall. Well as is witnessed by the reception that it got. Everyone here knows what he is and what he can do, and he's done it again. And as usual, as most of you could see, this just comes out. I mean, there's no written speech up here. It's just, he knows it, and he's able to tell it to us in a way that we all enjoy. And Ed, 
There's no way that we can ever show appreciation to you, but we would like to have you accept this small gift as a, our way of saying thank you again, and we hope to see you again very, very soon, that you'll be back with us as soon as possible. It's always a pleasure, and you were too kind to me. I usually don't have to even write out any notes, but as I say, <laughs> Gettysburg is not my best spot. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much.